Y'all doing all right tonight? Good. Um, how many people are wondering what the rocking chair is for? Only a few of you. Okay. Um, well, it was a really long weekend, so if y'all don't mind, I'm just going to sit right here. And has anybody ever seen a pastor start a sermon in a rocking chair? No? Today's a first. That's awesome. When I was growing up, my, um, uh, my family would, uh, would, would take trips, and we'd go visit other family. Um, we'd go visit my uncle in uh, Denton. Um, or, or my, my grandpa had a farm in Albemarle, and, uh, and when we were going through these small country roads in North Carolina, we would see often, it's a very common occurrence, to see um, people sitting on their front porches in their rocking chairs, or to see people like in the middle of their lawn under a, uh, the shade of a tree while the sun was beating down on their head, um, but not because they were under the shade of the tree, but they were enjoying the sun, um, outside on their lawn. Uh, and so when I was in college, uh, I had a buddy um, who got married pretty early. And uh, he, told, he, he told us this story. And uh, he said, he said, my wife always thinks it's strange um, when nighttime comes, the sun starts going down. She's like looking for me around the house. And she's like, Where, where's my husband? Uh, and she would always find him on the front porch sitting on his rocking chair, and she'd say, what are, you, what are you thinking about? And he'd say, nothing. Ladies, that is possible <laughs> to think about nothing. So if you ask your, your husband that, he could possibly be thinking about nothing. Um, and, but they don't understand that. Uh, <laughs> but she, he would say nothing. She said, well, but then what are you doing out here? And he would say, I'm just enjoying a good sit. And she was like, what? And he was like, got my chair, got my dog, sat my door, and enjoying a good sit. And that was, it was that simple. And what we find Abraham doing in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, is enjoying a good sit. So let's look at it together. I'm not going to sit in the rocking chair the whole time. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, this is what the, Lord, the word of the Lord says. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Let's pray. Father God, um, this is your word, and we don't need to hear what I have to say tonight. We need to hear what you have to say. My words can do nothing to transform the ears the hearers, those who are hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth. Father, we need your word to penetrate deep within our hearts. We need you to grant faith. We need you to strengthen us. We need you to challenge us, to encourage us. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak, that you would teach, Lord, that you would draw people to yourself, that we would be walk away in awe of you tonight because you are God alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here Abraham is enjoying a good sit in the shade of his tent. Maybe he's thinking about nothing. And then, bam, the Lord shows up. That's what it says right here in front of us. This could be, this is another theophany. It's a divine visitation, if you will. 
The Oaks of Mamre is in Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem. It's to the west of the Dead Sea. So this is the place, if you remember, uh, back in um, chapter 13, verse 18, that Abraham had settled, and he built an altar of worship to the Lord when he had split up from Lot. All right? So it's interesting to note that chapter 17, verse 1, and 18, 1, start in a very similar manner. This could be uh, Christophany which would be a pre-incarnate son of God showing up with two angels. So three visitors here. It's obviously not a normal visit as the text indicates. Look at verse two. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And so here he is enjoying a good sit. Maybe a light breeze is rolling through, right? He's in the shade. And all guys know, like, when you're sitting in a chair, it's been a long day of work, and you're sitting there, and the temperature's just right, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, and you sit down, what happens? A little, little siesta, right? You're going to take a nap. Um, well, Abraham, he possibly could have been nodding off. Well, the text says that he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, all of a sudden, there were three men there. He, he looked, he saw and he ran. This is very significant because in this culture, old men didn't run. Abraham's a patriarch, right? He, and, and so this tells us he, this was no normal visit. This, this was a special visit. He clearly respected the visitors very much because he, he got up from where he was. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He got up from where he was, and then he ran, which was a big deal. He not only ran, he bows himself to the earth. It's very similar. If you look back one page or one chapter, 17, 3. Look at that verse where it says, Abram fell on his face in worship. I was visiting the Conti small group this last week, and uh, we were discussing chapter 17 and, um, and Brody's sermon about how the knowledge of God, theology drives worship. Theology, our, our knowledge of God, what we know about God drives worship. And Caitlin Weibel said that, that passage, um, and when we were talking about Abraham bowing down before the Lord, falling down before the Lord, reminded her of Psalm 95. And so I'm just going to read a few verses of Psalm 95. It says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. When I was in high school, um, a senior in high school. I had just become a follower of Christ. The Lord had, had given me a new heart, and I, have, I was passionate and zealous for the Lord, and I would do crazy things, whereas before I would do crazy things just to be an idiot. This time I would do crazy things just for the Lord. And so one time we were at the YMCA. I don't know if they have those around here, but we were at the YMCA um, parking lot. It was pretty late at night, and I'm with some other crazy friends who love Jesus, okay, just some Jesus freaks, but teenage boys, so weird. Have y'all ever seen any teenage boys hanging out at the Ingalls parking lot? Yeah. So that, imagine that, okay, but late at night, and um, we weren't doing anything shady, 
but we were listening to really loud Jesus music, okay? And we were just shouting and dancing and running around and just praising the Lord, like shouting and making a joyful noise. And if you would have looked at us from the outside and not heard like what we were saying, you would have probably thought those boys are on something, right? Or maybe called the cops because of the noise ordinance. But sometimes it's time for us to shout. It's time for us to make a joyful noise and worship the Lord, which is how he starts the psalm. But then there's other times where we have a different posture of worship, where you, it's, we're called to be more quiet and, and servant-hearted. And like it's, it continues in Psalm 95, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So there's times in life where we need to sing and shout and dance and make a joyful noise to the Lord and, and let the exuberance uh, fill our hearts and, and just explode in worship because we can't contain it. And then there's other times where we humbly bow, kneel with our hands in our laps. We worship the Lord like that. Usually, wholehearted worship feeds a desire to serve the Lord. Usually, wholehearted worship feeds a desire to serve the Lord. So Abraham bows himself low before the Lord and says in verse 3, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. So Abraham addresses his visitors as if they are very unique. Hospitality is a, a really big deal in this culture, for, especially for travelers, um, because back then, you know, they didn't have um, really nice Motel 8s or, or Red Inns or Hampton Inns. I, was <laughs> I didn't name the best hotels. <laughs> but they didn't, they didn't even have, like, good, like, state-maintained rest areas on the side of the highway. And so, hospitality was a big deal for visitors. Hebrews 13.2 is a connecting verse for our passage today, and it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We are about to see the height of ancient hospitality. So, Abraham and Sarah pull out all the stops. He realizes... His place as well. He's, re he's referring to himself in front of his visitors as your servant. So we, we can learn something from Abraham here. Do we refer to ourselves as your servant? I'm the Lord's servant. Is that how we see ourselves? Is a Abraham's posture, is Abraham's response to the Lord our posture, our response? Are we coming humbly? Are we coming reverently with respect and proper perspective? Right? How different would your day be, just maybe, if you started every day and you actually got down on your knees, like when you got out of the bed, maybe you slide out of the bed, you don't even stand up, but you get down on your knees and you started like this and you said, Lord, here I am. Thank you for waking me up. I'm your servant. Use me today. Like, what if you started your day like that? Like, in a, in a posture of just humility. In a, in a, and, and say, Lord, here I am. I want, I want you to use me. I want, I want to serve you. 
So Abraham asks, if not urges, his visitors to rest and stay, and so they accept his hospitality. Abraham says, if I have found favor in your sight, and they say, do as you have said. So Abraham seeks and finds grace, unmerited, unearned favor. He clearly views these visitors as very unique. Maybe it's the Lord. He's not really sure, but maybe it is. We will see how worship quickly leads to serving in these next few verses. Pick up, um, look at verses 6, 7, and 8. You're going to see a sense of urgency here. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick! Three says of fine flour. Knead it. Make cakes. And then Abraham ran to the herd. He took a calf, tender and good, gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So Abraham went quickly. He, he gives urgent instructions. He ran. He hand selects good meat for special guests. And he had a servant prepare it quickly. This was clearly not like a grab and go experience. This is not a, a quick and save. This is not, is it a solo? This is not stopping at the solo or White's Plaza for fried chicken. That's not what this is. Somebody say amen. Nobody said amen. Okay. I'm not, I'm not going to go try it now. What, what was offered, what Abraham said was some water, some, some feet washing, some rest, and some basically pita bread. What comes out is an extravagant feast. This is, this is lavish, kick your feet up hosting, okay? Like three says is about six pounds of flour. So they're about to have some bread, maybe some cake, okay? They're going to take care of their, their guests really well. A good tender meat with that bread, curds, in case you're wondering what that is, it's kind of like yogurt. So think about some really delicious Greek yogurt and milk to go with it. Special note here, a little rabbit trail, Sarah respected and listened to Abraham. Later on, she refers to Abraham as my Lord, lowercase l. So she, she submitted to him as the head of her household. In 1 Peter 3, 5 through 6, she, it says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So Sarah would say, my Lord, and Abraham would say, my lady. Here we have a beautiful picture of a married couple being hospitable, using their home to serve the Lord. And this time, the special guest is none other than Yahweh. Kent Hughes said this, Abraham realized that his generous banquet had been eaten by the Lord and his attending angels. This is the only place in scripture before the incarnation that the Lord ate a meal with a human being. How awesome is that? It's the only place in Scripture before God in the flesh, that's Jesus, before the incarnation, before Jesus comes onto the earth and enters into his creation, that God has a meal with another human being. In chapter 17, that is cool, Abraham worshiped God. In chapter 17, he worshiped God as El Shaddai. Right? He worshiped the Lord because he is transcendent. 
He, he's God alone. There's no one like him. There's no one beside him. He holds all of time in his hands. And here in chapter 18, we learn that God is imminent. He's near. So near that he would enter in for a meal with his creation. Behold our God. Intimate. Gracious. Close. Can you, can you imagine? I tried to do this. This is so difficult. Let's just try right now. Can you imagine him at your table. Envision right now your, your kitchen. Think about your kitchen. Think about your kitchen table. Can you imagine the Lord at your table? After we pray in my house, um, Allie and I like to take our glasses or our cups or whatever we have, and we like, we like to cheer with our boys. Cheers. Cheer. And we say, Right after we pray, we say, Jesus is king, and we cheer. Everybody cheers. And for us, it's a reminder that he is Lord, that he reigns. And, and, and it, it helps us to realize that we can fellowship with him. He's God, but we get to fellowship with him, and that he's here, and that he reigns, even over your kitchen table. I'm, I'm always baffled at the story that Jesus, this is risen Jesus, died on the cross, buried, dead, buried in the ground, rose from the grave, and what do we find him do later? What do we find him doing? He goes around, he talks to people, shows himself to people, says, hey, I'm here in the flesh. Thomas, you didn't believe, here's my, you said, you, unless you saw the holes in my hands, unless you put your hand in the, in the hole in my side, you wouldn't believe, well, here I am, you want to put your hand here? And what does he do? He falls down, my Lord and my God. And then what do we see this Jesus do who could just do things only God could do because he is God. We see him later when his boys are out fishing again. We see him come up and go to a beach and make a fire. And I don't know if he caught the fish or if he just like fish, right, <laughs> on a, how he did it. But like, but he's, he's roasting fish over a fire. And he's, and he's inviting Peter in, who denied him, who, who's, who basically spit in his face. And, and he said, come, come eat with me. Come have a meal with me. This blows my mind. It's unbelievable. This is who our God is. How wonderful is this? This, this could have been what it was like for Abraham and Sarah. The Lord's eating a meal in our house. I really hope he likes it. I, I, hope, the, I, I hope he used Scott Townsend's sauce. What does Abraham do? What do we see him doing? He stands off to the side like a good servant while they eat. He's hosting. He's waiting on them. He's hoping they enjoy it. And look at verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Wait, how, how do they know that he's married? Better yet, how do they know her name is Sarah? He just, God, God changed Sarah's name last chapter. Right? And now you have these three, th like right then, probably is where Abraham was like, oh, this is not a normal visit. 
they knew her new name. And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So God reveals again to Abraham this promised miracle baby, just like in Genesis 17, 16. But in verse 10, God's telling Abraham the specific details now about this long-awaited child of promise who is finally going to come. When's he coming? Next year. They're getting a heads up from the Lord. God brings clarity to where there was silence, to where there was unknown, to where there was anticipation and waiting. Now they have a time frame. There's no more waiting in the dark. Now they know next year it's going to happen. I was talking to my father-in-law about this passage, and, and he said this. He said, when I read this passage, he said, I'm convinced that this is Jesus. He said, no man can look at God and live, but Jesus is the part of the Godhead that when you put your eyes on him, we live. The thought that Jesus is announcing the birth of his great-great-great-grandfather, the child of promise, is mind-blowing. That's really cool. Notice that Abraham doesn't question the knowledge that these visitors have of his family, nor does he question the promise of, of the child for a wife who is barren and of old age. Abraham had already received the covenant from God in chapter 15, and then he'd received the, the sign of the covenant in chapter 17, and now he's having a covenant celebration meal. What an exciting announcement that the Lord was delivering to Abraham's household over a meal. Thousands of years later, Jesus would make an announcement over a meal, instituting a new covenant, saying this is the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So in, in glory, we will celebrate all God's covenants ultimately fulfilled over a meal. As the angel told John in Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So sharing a meal is special. God gave us meals. He, he created us. He designed our bodies in such a way that you need to eat. And if you don't eat, then you die. Right? We need that. It's a reminder that we can't just keep going unless we get fuel. So sharing meals are... Is a, is, a, is a constant reminder like sleep, that it's humbling. You need it. God doesn't need it. We do. God created us uniquely. So we, when we share a meal together, that's very intimate. That's, that's fellowship. That's, that's family time. We get to do that now. We get to do that as a church corporately. And we're going to get to do that eternally with our eternal family as well, which is pretty awesome. Back in Genesis 18, 10, we, we notice how Sarah was eavesdropping, right? She's, she's hiding behind the door. She was curious as to who or what is all the urgency about? Who's so important? Why, 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 why quick? Why are we doing this? In verses 11 and 12, the narrator gives us a glimpse behind the scenes. It's a little zoom out, if you will, from this royal feast of hospitality. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman has ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? 
So Abraham's 99. Sarah's around 90. The way of women has ceased with her, meaning no more menstrual cycle, right? Reproductive years, over. There comes a time when a woman is no longer physically capable of conceiving a child. This proves that naturally the promised child is impossible. Absolutely impossible. Not by human means. That's why Isaac's birth was supernatural. A a covenant child. Something only God could do. Which is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. The ultimate promised seed to come. So Sarah, hearing that she's supposedly going to have a son next year, is laughable for her. The text says she laughed to herself. This is not an LOL moment. Okay? She, she laughed to herself. You've laughed inside. I know you have. Right? Everybody's done it. Without letting people see it on your face. You're laughing inside. She's laughing to herself. Not out loud. Not for Abraham to hear. Definitely not for the visitors to hear. Because that would be super disrespectful. She had so longed to have the joy of a son. That's why in verse 12, when she says, now am I supposed to have this pleasure? That's what that word means. That pleasure means joy. Am I supposed to have this joy now? I'm really old. I'm worn out. You expect me to have the joy of a son now? Puh! Whatever. This is way different from Abraham's laughter back in chapter 17. How do we know it's different? Because of God's response. God does not correct nor rebuke Abraham. But look at the last three verses of this passage. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you And about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. So the Lord knew that Sarah had laughed to herself. Her laugh was a snarky, unbelieving laugh. She she laughed silently, inwardly, in her heart, like that's impossible. That's not going to happen. This teaches us that God knows what goes on in your head and in your heart. It proves yet again that this is a divine visit. Kent Hughes points this out. This is absolutely awesome. Whereas Hagar had learned that God sees her, now Sarah learns that God sees inside her. That's really cool and kind of really scary. God sees my sarcastic thoughts. I'm in trouble. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm really guilty. And, and, and if you would be like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not guilty about that. I'm pretty good. I live a pretty good life. I don't really, really, like, I think I keep the Ten Commandments. do a pretty good job at that. What What if we had the ability to record all of the words 
that you didn't say but just thought? Not even over the past week. Maybe just the past 48 hours. And we could put it up here on the screen. And it, would you stay in the room? Right? Or, or the things that you've done when nobody watched. What if it was recorded? Would you stay in the room? Guilty. Right? All of us. Just guilty. This is our God. He sees. He sees. He sees it. But he also sees in here. He sees in here. He knows. Psalm 139.4 says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Just like Jesus knew the Pharisees' thoughts. Those are funny passages. When the Pharisees say, think, they, they think something, and Jesus is like, he knows what they're, thought, what they're thinking. And he answers them, and they didn't even verbalize it. Matthew 12.36, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word. I imagine that the Pharisees were perplexed and shocked, much like Sarah, as they were thinking and saying things behind Jesus' back without him hearing it, or so they thought. But Jesus knew their thoughts. The Lord knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He sees your heart. A.W. Tozer wrote a book entitled The Knowledge of the Holy incredible, very short book, amazing book in the chapter on divine omniscience, meaning God knows all. He blows our minds with this paragraph, and I'll read it for you. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and all dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible, in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, hell. God knows. That, that's who our God is. Sarah realized that God's knowledge had no limits, that nothing was too wonderful for him to accomplish, which brings us to the point of the text. The main point of the passage comes from verse 14. In the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the, the Hebrew word for that is palah, which means wonderful. The biblical uses of this verb is, is marvelous or wonderful or surpassing or extraordinary. Is anything too hard? Is anything too wonderful for our God? The answer is no. Nothing is impossible with our God. Nothing is too hard for our God. No one's too far gone from our God. You can't do anything to run away from him. He sees all. He knows all. He's always there. Psalm 72, 18 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wonderful things. Psalm 86, 10 says, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. 
Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, is it you who have made the heavens and the earth and by your great power and your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you since God created everything out of nothing. Of course, he could bring a life out of a barren womb. Matthew 19, 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. In Luke 1, 37, the angel says to the Virgin Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Eventually we know that while Sarah laughed and was scared to bear a child in her old age, she eventually believed and she received and she conceived because she's in the hall of fame. Hebrews eleven eleven, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So at first, Sarah tries to deny that she laughed, but she can't fool the Lord. And she can't fool Abraham because the Lord told Abraham, can you imagine that confrontation? Like Abraham walks up to Sarah and he's like, why'd you laugh? And she's like, what are you talking about? He's like, God told me. You laughed. <laughs> that was awkward. She had to give an account really quickly, like for her careless words. The Lord was obviously merciful towards her, sh showered her with grace to where she was still able to live up to be the princess, to be the one who would, who would bring about this son called Isaac, whose name means, anybody know? Laughter. Father and mother both laughed, who had been in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. Let's not miss the crucial line in, in 14, at the appointed time, this time next year. A reminder for all of us that God's timing is perfect. At just the right time, at the appointed time, he brings about all of his purposes, all of his plans, all, all times. There is never a time when he is late. He's always on time. He, all, he, he sovereignly orchestrates all things. He sovereignly appoints all things. He sovereignly plans Nothing is too hard for our God. Do you believe that? That's, that's, that's the only thing that we have to, to walk away from tonight. Nothing is too hard for our God. Do you believe that? This passage par parallels with the church today in many ways. We've already looked at a couple of them in the nearness of the Lord to his children, how we, we share meals. He shares meals with us. He instituted the Lord's Supper, and once a month we get to share that here at Red Oak. And then the, the, the fellowship we, we have with the Lord continually remaining in the church today, the promised fulfillment of a supernatural birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to share that you must be born again, the reality that nothing is too difficult for our God, even to defeat the power of sin and death the supernatural birth of believers from death to life the consistent indwelling of the Holy Spirit to where we're never alone the promise of a bodily resurrection to eternal life forever with him in glory nothing is too hard for our God 
Do you believe that? We are called to respond in faith to God's word, knowing that he never fails to keep his promises, that nothing's too wonderful for him. If you've never surrendered to Jesus, you can give your life to him right now. You can surrender. You can bow in your heart. You don't even have to get on your knees. It's a good thing too, though. But you can bow in your heart and surrender and repent. If you've never fellowshiped with Jesus, he wants to dine with you. And he invites you in. If you've never trusted him to raise you up, he will do that also. Do you consider him faithful who has made the promise? Maybe you already have been born again. Maybe you do enjoy fellowship with Jesus daily and you look forward to his return with eager expectation. Maybe you just need to take some time to rest and be quiet and be still before your God and know that he is God. Maybe you just need to have a good sit. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and thank you that nothing is too hard for you. I praise you and thank you that as hard as it is for us to think about, as hard as it is for us to believe that you see all things, you know all things. You see our hearts. You see our minds. You know our thoughts. And Father, us saying that makes us realize that we are guilty before you, a holy God. And so we admit we need your grace. God, I need your grace. We deserve death. We deserve your wrath. But Thank you, Jesus, for taking our place. Thank you, Jesus, for doing what we could never do, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, and defeating the power of sin and death so that we could have joy and life and purpose today, right now. Oh, God, you are a wonderful God, and I pray that we would turn our eyes to you and look on your wonderful face. And I pray that all the things in this world would fade away just paling in comparison to your glory and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.